Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kuninagel podcast series, Shipping Insights. I'm your host, Sarah Vollmer, Vice President of Global Sea Logistics Customer Engagement and Events at Kuninagel. You and I are about to embark on an exciting journey through the world of sea freight. I've been fortunate enough to have a front row seat to this industry's ups and downs over the past two decades. Now it's my pleasure to bring to you the latest developments, innovations, and solutions in this dynamic industry. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just curious about logistics, get ready for enlightening conversations and expert insights in our latest episode. Let's dive into the fascinating world of sea freight together and welcome our latest guest. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast series, Kuninagel's Shipping Insights. Today, we're talking emergency and relief. This is a very interesting topic, I think one that affects all of us in some way, shape, or form. And our guest today is Cormac O'Sullivan. Cormac, thank you for coming on to our show. I really appreciate it. If you could go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, I think that would be great. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, So my name is Cormac O'Sullivan. I'm the Global Head of Emergency and Relief for Kuninagel. I'm based in our central control tower, which is in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, And we've been operating emergency and relief program assistance uh, on behalf of all kinds of humanitarian clients from here for the last four decades. So we're quite a veteran in this sector, actually. Um, So yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So emergency and relief. What is that? What is what does that entail? Tell tell me more. Sure. So I think um, there are a couple of different sort of emergency and relief sectors in a way. So there's the sector that we work in, which is really that kind of humanitarian sector that you know when there's a when there's a big um, disaster event or a sudden onset disaster, as we saw in Libya recently and before that in Morocco, um, the emergency and relief community kicks in, and this is a community that has existed for quite a while now you know some people would say um since the foundation of the red cross um and red crescent societies that it's been in effect but what's interesting is that it's become more and more professionalized i think in the last five decades and so it's it's a big kind of global international uh, mechanism and it's impactful in a way that i think not everybody understands so when we see data for example over the last five decades that comes out from the world meteorological organization we can see that there have been more and more disasters so there's a clear and steady increase in in the number of disasters. And, you know, unfortunately, we expect that to continue uh, with the climate crisis. And then at the same time, there has been more and more of an impact in terms of economic losses as a consequence of these disasters. But we also see that this this sort of increase in mortality has not um, grown at the same way. So it's, it's decreased, actually. And I think for me, that's very symptomatic of the impact of this global community uh, made up of UN agencies, international NGOs or non-governmental organizations, lots of charitable um, sector partners who all work together to ensure that even when there are these disasters that strike in lots of parts of the world, their impact on mortality is minimized as much as possible. It's definitely not a perfect sector and it's very open and critical of itself and it's constantly striving to get better. But I think it's definitely, for me, 
um, very inspiring actually for us as a global community that it exists and that it has the kind of impact we would want it to have and also that it's become more and more professionalized over these last decades and we, we definitely play a part in that you know that we're a large global um, supply chain uh, service provider and we're definitely playing our part especially in the upstream but also in the downstream part in terms of bringing that kind of global logistics innovation and that kind of global logistics solution provision to the sector but we're not the only one so the organizations themselves are doing incredible things but also for example still staying in that logistics sphere but thinking about kind of how a response might happen um, maybe 20, 30 years ago when there was a large-scale disaster and there was a clear need for a medical response. You know, there was a lot of work that went into assembling the medications, putting them together, um, and then sending those medications over. And I think often there you know, could be bottlenecks in terms of having to do an inventory management and trying to make sure that the commodities were still fit for purpose. And now um, that we have developed as a global community these international emergency health kits, which are these... Uh, kits designed in advance that can serve a community of, I think it's up to 10,000 people for three months. So it has all of the sort of standard medical items you might need to be able to respond for a community of 10,000 people. So whatever that community might need in terms of, of their uh, medical um, solutions over that period is, is already pre-packed. And then there are different mod modules, right? So you can add on a, a malaria module or whatever you might need. So I think these are the kinds of innovations within this space that sort of have contributed to the professionalization of it and have meant that it, you know, it, it, it's much more impactful in terms of sort of saving lives and alleviating suffering. Okay, so I want to take a step back and just something you had mentioned um, earlier here as we started chatting. You mentioned about how, how organizations and agencies are kind of mobilizing in advance. So you even brought in the recent examples of Libya, the floods in Libya, um, earthquake in Morocco. So did anyone have any aid, so to say, uh, on standby for that? Or how, how are they using data to figure this out in terms of being able then to support in times of need without it being, I think you might even use the word not now, but previously, uh, maybe a bit more chaotic. Yeah, so I think I think it's a great question. I think people do experience, you know, most of us when we look at these disasters on TV or on Twitter or, or wherever it is or X now, um, I think they feel very chaotic. And it's true if you're somebody who's unfortunate enough to experience one of these events, they are chaotic and they're traumatic and they're, you know, horrific experiences for you and your community to go through. So it's true that when the event is happening, it, it feels awful to experience it. But and as much as that is true, I think the global community does have a sense for some of these types of disaster events of where they might hit or the general region they might hit. And there's a lot of work that has gone on over the years to sort of developing more and more insightful and intuitive ways of understanding what that might be. And it's not yet a perfect system. And there are some events that the global system is not great yet at, at kind of predicting with accuracy. So earthquakes being an example, um, that, that, ha that hasn't happened so far. But when it comes to um, areas of the world where there might be sort of lots of typhoons or hurricanes hitting, or in the case of, of the Mediterranean and Medicaid, or where there might be, or in parts of the world where there are clear signifiers or indicators um, in advance that there's going to be problems with rainfall patterns, so that which can lead to drought and um, flooding. I think the community has advanced quite a lot in being able to sort of 
understand what are the likely events, the likely disasters, the likely emergencies that may come. But there's also a complication around that, right, in terms of mobilizing resources and finances in advance for that. So it's not such a, a kind of a clean choice. I think, you know, there are limited resources often in the sector and understanding where those can be deployed to the best effect is not always um, so clear cut as I was sort of saying. So I think um, for me, I think when, when an event happens, though, there are lots of of even from a logistics perspective, there are lots of systems that can kind of kick in that our partners, that are um, our clients that we're working with have designed over the last number of decades. And one of the most impressive and one of the most relevant of these in relation to um, these sorts of disasters, these sudden onset disasters, are these pre-positioning strategies, which a lot of the cl- our clients have engaged in. So they may, um, they may have warehouses filled with these sort of readily deployable stocks um, all around the world. Uh, and one example we can give in relation to Libya is with our um, with with the international humanitarian city uh, warehouse in Dubai, where actually we have quite a large presence. So we're managing uh, well over 50 percent of the stocks there at the moment. So partnering with a lot of these UN agencies and these large INGOs to sort of manage them and get them ready when there is a crisis. So when the Libya floods struck, actually, I think there was a kind I had the feeling that there was kind of a delay there because it was very difficult um, for the information to get out of the city that was most impacted, which is Derna, where and so it took a bit of time for that for the scale of the tragedy in Derna to sort of reach the kind of global media and for that information to kind of get out there. But within a couple of days, we saw our clients start to bring together these kits uh, in Dubai, for example. So getting ready shelter kits. So, you know, when people have been displaced from their homes, they need somewhere to stay. I mean, you know, if you're exposed, it's one of the greatest risks that can um happen to people and to families so getting these uh, shelter kits getting these medical kits getting these they're called wash water and sanitation items ready to be deployed this is something that kicked in for us um, a couple of days after the 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 tragedy in Libya Um, and so this is sort of one example of how this interesting preparedness uh, mechanism can really kick in quite quickly and have a positive impact as the commodities move over and in terms of how we're sort of engaging as a as a company when there are events like this, one of the first things that we start to do is we have a global um, emergency leadership group and we convene meetings using, you know, just simple things like Teams and Zoom and stuff like that. We start to gather data. We have a global network. So we have this global reach everywhere. So we would reach out to our uh, KN colleagues on the ground as we did in the case of Morocco, um, or we would reach out to our agent partners, as we did in the case of Libya. And we have a bank of about 50 questions. And we sort of select from those 50 questions, what what are the most relevant things we need to understand in order to be able to start sort of proposing solutions for our clients. So that's one of the first things we do. We get together, we, we send the information out, we receive this information back, we sift through it. We're trying then to sort of understand <clears throat> how relevant this these solutions are and how accurate this data or this information is that's coming in because and, and we always caveat it right in the first couple of days you know we are sharing information about the impact of a, an event on the logistics infrastructure but of course things change and and you know we have people on the ground but sometimes it's not possible to get that exact understanding of what's happening in a specific stretch of road for example so we start to get this information together we double check it we go back over it and then we start to share it with our clients and we start to say here's what we know 
And then also here's, you know, uh, what are some of the solutions in terms of what to do with customs clearance, what to do in terms of warehousing, you know, are there warehouses still available? Um, I remember, for example, at the start of this year, when um, the the earthquake hit in Turkey and Syria, um, you know, we had someone from the emergency relief group on the ground within within a couple of days, initially in um, Istanbul, working with the KN team in Turkey to sort of marshal their resources and to kind of bring together all of their insights into what may be happening. And then I think within the first week, I personally actually went down to close to where the epicenter of the earthquake was with some of our KN Turkey colleagues. And in that particular context, what we were really interested in understanding for our clients was what had happened to the warehouses in in this kind of earthquake impacted area yeah so we were kind of assessing the warehouses and trying to understand what's possible and trying to you know understand how they'd been affected and then figuring out how we're going to get that information kind of back out to our, our clients and our partners so yeah i talked for a little while but i hope it gives you a sense of kind of how this global system works and there are lots of coordination bodies of course within the humanitarian sector as well that are governed by these things called clusters so there will be um, a, cl- a cluster that manages humanitarian nutrition responses or wash responses or health responses and of course there's one for logistics as well and they play a huge role in bringing together information about the road network and the ports and I mean it's incredible the kind of work that they can do and so we would of course any insights we have any information we have we try and share it with those guys as well so that we're contributing to this kind of greater good as well fascinating so i'm so curious how how did you get involved in this in the beginning and and you know i think probably some of our listeners are wondering as well you know how do i get involved what what can one do today to to get involved and become part of you know aid and relief supply chain yeah it's a great question so i can i can definitely tell you how i got involved so actually i i uh, straight out of college, I had worked in um, the logistics, the European logistics team for Apple computers, and I loved it. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years and I really, really enjoyed it. But I also knew that I wanted to work in this humanitarian aid and relief development space. Um, so from there, I, I, I did a master's which focused in on this on this at that point even though the sector had been in existence for a long time, there wasn't yet that much kind of academic research or work that had been done on the humanitarian logistics space. So I think when I was doing my dissertation, for example, there was maybe 50 or 60 articles total on humanitarian logistics. That's not the case now, actually. And and the Kuna Logistics University is one of the leaders now in bringing lots of research into this space. But um, so I knew I wanted to do it. So I uh, moved over from Apple Computers, did my master's, did a, a course um, a certificate in humanitarian logistics. I was one of the first people to do it. So it was very exciting, very interesting uh, time. And then I interned for quite a while um, while I was working actually in Sainsbury's in their global uh, in their global supply chain team. I was also wor- interning one day a week with Save the Children on their global supply chain as well. And then eventually they deployed me. And the first deployment was to the DRC Congo. I was based in the city of Goma. And there, I mean, that was quite an introduction to this sector. So there we were managing 240 health facilities so the logistics for 240 health facilities across two different provinces and i had kind of come from you know apple computers where there were you know if you were like i would like a report that tells me how to you know do abc and somebody would do it within a couple of hours and sainsbury's which is this huge retailer uh, and then suddenly i was working with this group that was partnering with ministry of health offices all across these two provinces and trying to make sure that the supply chains worked but actually what was so interesting to me was that 
the rules of good supply chain in terms of planning and forecasting and management are the same, whether it's in the kind of corporate world or whether it's in the humanitarian space or the development space. So one of the first things that I implemented was a KPI dashboard, you know, inspired by working in um, Sainsbury's where they had run their whole supply chain off three key uh, KPI metrics. I did the same thing. Well, you know, one of them was that we're going to look at availability. We're going to measure the availability of our essential medicines in each of these warehousing distribution points on a bi-monthly basis, and we're going to understand what's happening. So the rules, in many ways, are the are the same for good supply chain management. There are some differences between the two sectors, which we can talk about later. But but generally speaking, the rules are the same. So it was my first mission, and I have to say, I was really hooked by the challenge and honestly by the sense of kind of contributing back and by working in a sector which for me was filled with like-minded people um international sure but like but from across the world and and definitely most of the people which i want to sort of point out who engage in this humanitarian space they're living in their communities right so they're they're trying to make things better in amongst their communities and working side by side by them guided by them in terms of understanding what it is that they needed to improve and you know bringing kind of my my understanding to them was something that i was i found very humbling but also very um very very rewarding so that's how i entered the sector and then i worked in a number of different organizations before i came to the kuna foundation then from the kuna foundation i moved over to kuna nagel a year and a half ago so i've been in the kuna world for about seven seven and a half years but in kuna nagel proper for about a year and a half in this very interesting role well we're glad to have you so what advice would you give to somebody who's listening right now that says i, I want to get involved i want to get involved in supply chain for emergency and relief? How do I do it? So I think there are a number of different paths, but I think if you're coming to the sector as a logistician, especially if you're coming from the private sector, I think there are some courses you can do. So there's a course you can do, a number of courses you can do through the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport. There are also a number of courses you can actually do through the Kuna Foundation. They have some, some on the Help Logistics has some on their website. I would definitely say recognize that you have some great experience from working in the commercial sector, but that there are some um, differences, of course, to working in the humanitarian development space. And it is helpful if you train yourself up in advance before you seek to, to move across. Um, we within Kunanagel, um, we're definitely working on a way of of trying to give people the option and the training to understand emergency response um, from a logistics perspective, because we recognize that as we move into this um, this decade of action, I think some of the people in the humanitarian space are calling it, where there's going to be this climate crisis hitting us, there's this poly crisis, which is this term that is being used for all of these complex sort of geopolitical changes. So as we move into this decade of action, there are likely to be more and more disasters and more and more emergency events, and they won't all happen within this humanitarian space they may well happen closer to home than i think people realize and i think it's important to understand that you have this core logistics knowledge that you should work and develop on and that really what you need to do in order to be able to respond well if a disaster event happens is understand really the sort of some of the 
um, agility and adaptability and flexibility that you need to bring to the space um, when an emergency event happens. So definitely for people within Kunanagel, um, stay tuned. I think we're going to be launching this program that we have um, soon to get people trained up, to get people ready to support global communities as we f- uh, face this decade of disasters. Um, and I think for, for those who are sort of generally interested in, in entering the space, um, take a bit of time use the the information that's online on relief web or devex understand the sector understand where you want to be positioned understand the skill sets that you already have and how they can contribute and then definitely avail yourself of all of the learning opportunities that are out there so that when you do make it into this um, sector you're kind of ready to go you already have that you know your core logistics knowledge and you have this sort of understanding of what happens in a disaster so decade of disaster i don't know it sounds sounds a little grim but yeah um, I, <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> decade of action, I think, is the better way of describing it. Decade, I mean, of, action. decade I, of action. I like that. Yeah, I like yeah. the positive spin on that. Yeah. So let's go with that. So decade of action. Yeah. What can it's it's not what can we expect, right? But how can we prepare? How can all of us, you know, that are listening, that are working in the industry, whatever role you might have, or maybe you're not even in the industry. What can we do for preparation of the decade of action? Well, I think there's a lot we can do. And I think um, where we as a global community um, are definitely, you know, facing into this very complex period. Um, I think the UN and uh, Antonio Guterres has said this is we're in climate crisis now. And I think the general, you know, scientific consensus is that it's here Um, We have a certain understanding of what may happen. Um, So, for example, we know that current disaster belts, so, you know, the hurricanes that we experience in the US or potentially these these areas that are prone to wildfires, that we may see more and more of these events. Um, But we also understand that we may not have a full picture of what's going to happen over this next 10, 15, 20 years, that there may be different kinds of challenges that we haven't seen yet or that the, the, these types of challenges may present in areas that haven't experienced them before. And I think it is a daunting challenge um, that we know that this is ahead of us, uh, and that we're in it now, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in our, in our Copenhagen office, and I'm very conscious of what's been happening across Europe all summer, um, all summer long. But also, I think there have been these disastrous events all around the world. So I think we're, we're all recognised that it's here. Um, I think one of the important things from a logistician's perspective is that we have skills that are critical to keeping this world that we've created open. And I, I'm going to caveat that here because I know that some people are also critical of, of the sort of of the of globalization and its potential impact upon yeah, and that, and I'm you know, <laughs> don't come for me on Twitter as I say, but but what I would want to point out is that, um, be that as it may, the reality is is we all depend upon uh, food supply chains all around the world. We all depend upon healthcare supply chains on the world around the world. There are technology technology supply chains all around the world, and many other supply chains that are critical to both our continued progress as a species but also potentially to finding the solution for this this kind of climate crisis and i think um for us we play a role as logisticians in keeping these supply lines open and making sure that they the impact of disasters is minimized or mitigated 
So when we look at, you know, forecasts of the kinds of events that we might see, um, I think it's both uh, chilling and kind of a call to action, right? So, you know, um, obviously, caveat, you know, it's impossible to predict the future. But if we think about more and more potential wildfires um, hitting the kind of the west coast of the US that could disrupt those vital uh, road and rail routes, we also need to think, okay, if we see this event coming, if we see this potential impact on our supply chains, what can we do now to figure out ways to sort of work around that um, from a supply chain perspective? Because obviously, I think the global community is thinking of other ways to prevent this from happening. But we have to think, okay, if it does happen, if the worst does happen, or if these terrible events continue to happen, how do we work around them? Wow, Cormac fascinating. It's probably when, uh, no disrespect to all of my other guests, but it's probably one of my most fascinating conversations I have. This is just something that I don't know a lot about from my own personal perspective of how the logistics work for emergency and relief and such a great cause um, helping out the rest of the world. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show today. Of course, anytime. And if there is anyone out there who wants more information or wants to understand a bit more, just reach out. We're here to help. Oh, all right. Watch out. Watch out on your Twitter account here. It might it might be blowing up here soon, Cormac. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Please be sure to follow us on social and stay tuned for our next episode. Till then, see you next time.